Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In this Australian Investors Podcast episode, I'm joined by Pete Warjan, and we talk about rising interest rates, inflation, the election promises for property buyers from both the Liberals and Labor, Pete's new startup, and teaching kids about money. You may know Pete because he is one of Australia's leading experts on property investing, wealth creation, financial education and independence, and also the economy. He has authored multiple books, regularly presents at conferences or on the telly. Most recently, Pete has gone back into business with his co-founder, Doran Peleg, to start a property platform known as Buyers Buyers. Buyers Buyers connects you or buyers of properties with top buyers agents from around Australia at more affordable rates than the industry average. In this podcast, Pete talks us through the idea for the company, what problem they're solving, and how the business is coming together. I wanted to call this out, and I wanted to do this for Pete because they are currently raising capital, and I met up with Pete about a week ago, and we talked about kind of the trials and tribulations of raising capital and trying to fund a business through that next leg of growth. So please, if you're interested in learning more, reach out to him via the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Pete Wargent on the Australian Investors Podcast. Pete Wargent, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Pleasure. Thanks, Owen. It's uh, great to be here. Great to be on. Yeah, we, um, we've spoken a few times. We spoke many years ago and then we spoke at the beginning of COVID. We talked about property and what the data was showing us then. Um, and at that time, things were pretty gloomy for pandemic reasons. And now it's kind of inflation and interest rates uh, are on the horizon and people are, uh, again, kind of scared and, and, and fearful about what that might mean. So we're going to dive into that. This is a bit of a medley of sorts because we're going to talk about uh, a business that you've co-founded recently. We're going to talk about you know, your journey, how things have changed through time and maybe tackle some of these topical things like uh, what's going on with property, also in the economy with rates and inflation. Uh, I thought maybe we could start off, mate, with a bit of quick fire Q&A, um, three short questions. Um, you can answer these as quick as you like. Uh, I don't know how we're going to do this. We're just going to, I'm just going to throw them over to you and see how you go. Whatever works for you. Okay. <laughs> So first one is, where do you think inflation and interest rates will end 2022? Um, in Australia, um, yeah. I think headline inflation could get to 6% by the end of the calendar year. I think if you looked at the, uh, the underlying measures of inflation, maybe four and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, so that means interest rates are going up for sure. Uh, fixed mortgage rates have been rising for a long time anyway. I think at the end of the year, the cash rate might be one and a half percent, maybe two percent maximum, and I think for this cycle, terminal cash rate two and a half. Yeah, right. Okay. So when you say this cycle, do you see inflation therefore being more transitory, or do you think this is something that's going to be with us for a while? Yeah. Look, a lot can change quickly in geopolitics, and you have to remember it's only in September and even early October when people were calling for the inflation target to be reduced. Because uh, mm. to one to three percent, because we couldn't reach the two percent inflation target, True. so a lot can change quickly. Um, I think um, overall, all of those things that were putting downward pressure on inflation, like outsourcing of work to um, to Asia and the global increase in the supply of the labour force and technology, all of those things, casual workforce, all of those things haven't really gone away. It's just that we've got to 
uh, we had a supply shock overlapped by another supply shock. So we've got China in lockdown. We've got Ukraine warfare ongoing. And this is all coming on the back of two years of COVID disruption. Um, I suspect that inflation is transitory, but the way things have been going in Ukraine, it might stick around a bit longer than we were first thinking. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, we, we'll dig more into that towards the back end of the, the conversation because we'll talk about asset classes. Um, another quick fire question. Have you ever traded Bitcoin or Ethereum? Why? Why not? Uh, no. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. I presented at an event um, at the Gold Coast a couple of months ago, and at the end of um, the presentation, you got to sit in these little tables of mm-hmm. 10, and each of the, everyone in the, the group would ask you a question. And every single group I went round to, the young people were saying, so what do you think about crypto? And this is, you know, from a sample of 100 people. And the question was coming up a lot. I guess the thing is, if I was 20 years old, yeah, for sure, I would be probably using leverage. I'd probably be punting on Ethereum or, you know, whatever the latest fad is. In the same way that I used to be very into uh, the penny stocks and mining stocks when I was younger. I guess the thing is, I'm 45. I've had some good results from investing and a bit of luck along the way. So, Really, I'm thinking these days of rule number one, don't lose money, because Mm -hmm. I I know that if I don't do anything stupid, don't get divorced, then I'm on track for a fairly comfortable retirement. But for sure, if I was 20 years old, I may well think differently. Mm. Yeah, because we we caught up in Noosa last week and um, we talked about this and we talked about basically everything that's going on in in the world of cryptocurrencies and Web3 and um, well, since then, there's been a lot that's hit the news. And we, we, we talked off here just briefly about not making any enemies. So I thought I'd just, just bring that up. But um, people may remember that we've we've spoken in the past before. Uh, and the first conversation was more about your journey um, through, I guess, the early part of your career and being an accountant, going on this journey to, I guess, kind of clean up your personal finances and really fast track your wealth creation. Um, I know you met your partner and she instilled some kind of values on you as well when it comes to investing and money in general. But if I'm not mistaken, Pete, you reti- you could self-fund your lifestyle basically by the age of 33. And one of the questions that I, I think come from that is what maybe is one thing that moved you towards that goal quickly that you can look back on it with, in retrospect and think, oh, that was really effective at the time. And what was maybe one thing that pulled you away from that goal of um, generating that type of wealth? Because people hear 33 years of age and they think, wow, that's young. You must have been a miser or really, really you know, hyper-effective at saving or had a massive income or something. And I doubt that's the case. Uh, yeah, look, we were both higher-income uh, taxpayers, me and my wife, by the age of 26. So, so obviously that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, you've got two different things there. There's pull factors and push factors. For me, the, the biggest thing by far that drew me onto that path was I, I just couldn't stand the corporate job. You know, I did it. I graduated. I did what I was expected to do, uh, qualified as a chartered accountant. You know, was a, went through the system at Deloitte, you know, manager, senior manager, director. Then I went into uh, doing the sort of um, going into industry and I was a group FC in the listed environment. I was like, I seriously cannot do this for another 32 years. I, I met a guy um, who you know, Stephen Moriarty, mm. a few years back, and he told me about this concept of the Enneagram assessment. And it, it was a, it's a really useful conceptual framework if you're not familiar with it, just to understand your personality type and what are your motivations. And for my personality type, uh, freedom, no constraints, not having a boss telling you what to do, 
And so for me, that was a huge factor. I was just like, just couldn't physically uh, conceptualize sitting in an office for the next 35 years and through to retirement. So that was a big factor that pushed me towards it. Now, mm. it's not to say that it's, you know, it's not for everyone. Some personality types are very driven by uh, goal setting, achievement, um, status, uh, you know, high powered corporate role or being a CEO or whatever. Uh, but that's a different personality type from me. So that that's really the, the thing that um, sort of was the big driving factor. We were both higher income earners, which obviously helped. And uh, I guess, yeah, we just um, basically sat down and it's pretty sad, but we wrote a high level plan. We had the dream board, <laughs> you know, we had a target of, um, and for us, it was, uh, we used a lot of leverage in property, uh, which again is not for everybody, but it was what we considered the fastest route out of the rat race for us um and um yeah and also we i mean i was a bit of a party animal when i was younger <laughs> but we we gave all that up um quit drinking ran the sydney marathon stopped spending money so we really went at it very hard which you know again it, different for different people but for me i found that not going to the opera bar on friday nights i mean that was more or less an impossibility for me but we did eventually manage to get into that routine mm. um but yeah like again it, it's a different it's a different journey for everybody and mm. you've got to, you know find a way that works for you yeah i think you you talked about that that the personality types are so important a lot of people don't think about those they just think about it as a spreadsheet right this is what i should be saving this is what i should be earning this is what i you know should invest um, but that doesn't always take into account how you feel and how you behave with money and how you behave in life. And um, but the reason, one of the things that really struck me about your journey when I was reading your books is um, basically you went through that period, like you said, where you did a lot of partying and, and had a really good life and went to the opera bar. And then you kind of switched gears really quickly, which I thought was really impressive to go from one extreme to the other. Not everyone could probably do that. Um Anyway, I, I thought that was really interesting. So, and one of the things that leads on the back of this is how then has your investment strategy changed or morphed from then, say, when you you were aggressively saving, accumulating assets to now? Have you done anything that's drastically different? You said rule number one is don't lose money. How has that kind of played out in your personal investment profile and strategy? Uh, yeah, well, a couple of different things. So, yes, going from... Uh, living in nice places with harbour views, uh, traveling a lot, go partying Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, you're right, going from uh, one extreme to the other is quite difficult. One of the things for me is I just reached a point where I just, I just you know, basically, I was, I was never a good drinker. I, I don't normally talk about this, but I'll talk about it with you, Owen, because you're a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was like a lot of young poms, I was a heavy drinker but i just got to a point i just thought this is not doing me any favors and Mm. in the end i just thought i'm just going to stop so i went completely cold turkey the problem is for anyone who uh, and anyone who's been through the same thing would know what i'm talking about when you take away something that's such a big part of your life you've got to then you've got to fill it with something else because it leaves a big hole in your life Mm. where you used to be going out friday saturday sunday you know probably thursday (laughs) pitchy bay hotel if you're not doing that, you've suddenly got to replace it with something else. Now, for me, um, I found an interest in personal finance, investing, travel, learning languages. But again, it, you know, whatever it is, is different for different people. I guess since we um, quit the corporate role and went out and we've been doing our own thing, I and mean, you'll have been through this yourself as a startup business owner, 
or a small mm. business owner. It becomes much harder to be a borrower. Um, so you can still do it, but it, you've got to jump over more hurdles. So we've still added properties to the portfolio um, over time. Um, we've diversified a bit more. Um, these days we've got uh, farmland and commercial property in the property portfolio. We still do stocks. Um, so I guess the the strategy hasn't changed, but we don't use big gearing these days. That's the main difference. Mm. Uh, when when I was young, we just borrowed whatever we could. These days, it, it would be much harder to do that, even if we wanted to, uh, but much more modest uh, loan-to-value ratio and leverage these days. So you basically, you recognise that you have very stable, high incomes at the time, and that is like the ideal scenario for banks, right, for lenders, because you you're, you two, two incomes, really solid, good savings rate, can leverage as much as you like, uh, and then it comes down to asset quality, right? What are you buying? Uh, we spoke... When we spoke last week, you reminded me of something that you live in Noosa, but a lot of your investments are outside of that. They're in Sydney and, like you said, farmland. And if I'm not mistaken, you still have an investment overseas. Is that correct? Yeah, well, half of our portfolio is in England. Yeah, so we um, we, we spend a fair chunk of the year in Europe. Um, so, um, as you mentioned, when we were younger, we largely went into uh, London and Sydney property. That was, I mm. guess, the two markets that we went uh, went really hard into when we were younger. As we as we get older, we don't have the, the the same leverage or appetite for risk these days. So we're generally buying cheaper assets in, in when we do property. And also, I mean, these days we just look for markets that are undervalued. Um, so um, I'm trying to think of an example. Like in the after the global financial crisis, a lot of markets in the UK got smashed. You know, down forty percent. So he's kind of using that margin of safety approach buying stuff that's cheap. Geelong in 2014 was another one. You know, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. Everyone was saying, you know, last one out, switch off the lights when they were closing the, the car factories. And um, there were a number of big high-profile closures in Geelong. But I was thinking, well, is this really a long-term thing or is it, you know, is this just mm. a short-term disruption? So, yeah, but much cheaper assets these days. When we were starting out, we were mainly investing in places like, you know, Bondi and Darling Harbour and the inner west of Sydney and stuff. Um these days, yeah, much sort of less leverage. Mm. Um, just on that, because I, I we did talk briefly about this uh, last week, was when you invested in Geelong, you you kind of said like you look for things when there's like bloodies in the streets, so to speak. Like the headlines are just all doomsays, um, just calling for you know declines and this is it's going to get worse before it gets better type of thing. How did you get conviction that even with like the Ford factory closing here here in Victoria and Geelong? How did you get conviction to back yourself into that position? Like, was there something that you looked at in particular that, that said, okay, I'm, I'm confident with this? Did you travel to the area? Like, what did you do? Not really. I was advised by um, a buyer's agent called Catherine Cashmore, who's a good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. um, but also the yields were really good. You know, you could buy uh, the gross yields on um, residential property were, what, 6 7% in some cases. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, when, at, at a time when mortgage rates were falling. Um, so that was a part of it, but look, it's the same. I mean, how do you how do you hold your nose and buy stocks that have been battered down? It's the same way, right? You just think, particularly with an ETF, if you're buying a country or a sector, if it's fallen in half, you, you know the headlines are not going to be good, but you just hold your nose and do it anyway. And you, I guess, the other thing is if you're taking a long term view, then that kind of um, sort of takes the stress out of the equation. If you're worried about what's going to happen in the next three months, then yeah, it could be tough. 
Mm. Um, so yeah, it's the same principle really, and mm. you, you can apply those uh, same principles in the stock market as well. But I guess if you're going to do it, you have to learn to kind of ignore the media headlines because, but almost by definition, they're going to be negative. I'll give you actually just thought of another example. Um, a few years back, all these uh, media headlines started talking about uh, ground zero for Australian properties, apartments in Brisbane. Mm. And um, I was um, you know, living in Queensland. And I thought, well, you know, all the headlines are saying it's the end of the world. There must be some bargains there. <laughs> and we, we bought a place in uh, New Farm, which is you know, a blue chip area. Um, nice little unit with views in district views in two directions and it was a it was a dump of a unit and needed a full renovation but i guess the same principle right if, if the media is saying the world is ending that probably means you're going to buy something under market value and I, i'm guessing that when you bought your first uh home it was the same thing you know the media was ah, oh, you know prices are going to fall 35 percent, and you know vendors are quite keen to offload well that, i mean that's ideal for you as a buyer yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, we bought our place um, the first day of lockdown, stage four lockdowns in Victoria. So that played to our favor. Um, I'd like to switch gears now, mate. I realize we never spoke about your book, Wealth Ways for the Young, which is a book that you wrote designed for the children, for parents. There it is. Yep, got it in front I of you. I even well. grabbed a copy off the bookshelf. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Wonderful. Um, and it talks about you know how you can teach your, your children about money, some things that you can do with them, and as they get older too. Um, so... I was hoping maybe because you've got kids as well. Um, I'm hoping you can tell us uh, at the beginning of the book, there's this section where you talk about, you know, most people don't want to read a book these days. And at the start, you give us these kind of 20 things you should, your kids should do. Um, yeah. Maybe you can, share, can find... it's, on, yeah. it's on page 12. Maybe you can um, share a couple of them with us. And um, maybe on the back of that too, how, how you've gone about teaching your kids about money or investing. Right. So that was the driver for me writing the book. Cause we, decided to have, have kids and I'd heard all of this stuff like oh, th- you shouldn't tell your kids this and you shouldn't do that mm. and I was like well <laughs> you know that's all well and good and a bit like yourself um, I guess when I was growing up there wasn't really a healthy relationship with money in our mm. family so I thought well <laughs> let's do some research and I'll, I'll try to write a, a book about what you should teach your kids about money but bring it into the modern context so I guess some of the simple things uh, are the same as what we were sort of told or you know heard about when we were younger and that is you know teacher concept these kids of like save a third you know and watch the interest grow you know spend a third of your money mindfully and you know donate a third to a good cause like our kids like um wildlife warriors at australia zoo so they go one third of the pocket money goes there a third of it you get to spend in the toy shop or buy lollies mm-hmm. and then a third you put aside and save for a rainy day and they could learn about compound interest. So, I mean, that that is not a new idea. That idea has been around for decades. Mm. So that's that's an example of something you can do that's a very traditional um, step. But as I said, I, I put the 20 bullet points right at the beginning because I know most people are not going to sit and read a book these days. <laughs> but as I said, if you follow those 20 simple bullet points, your kids will be better off financially than 98% of the population because most people don't know the basics um i guess um another simple thing um is giving a giving your kids the opportunity to double their pocket money by doing household chores so my kids uh, wash and vacuum the car and they can double (laughs) their their pocket money each week so those are really traditional ideas i think the thing that's changed a bit um 
I guess these days we're, there's, we already mentioned cryptocurrencies and cashless economy. So simple things like you know teaching your kids to use cash um, and also teaching them good online habits because you know I guess that's something that we didn't have to contend with growing mm. up. But for our kids, they want a phone already, and they're like five and seven. You know, so mm. there's there's new things coming onto the horizon. I guess most importantly, try and get them to avoid at all costs consumer debt because most people don't, and it's a massive well, it's compounding in reverse, as you know. Mm. Okay. So how do you find that the kids respond to that? Do you think that they react differently? Like if you ask them to clean the car, does one think, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And the other one thinks no. Or like, do you try and prompt them in any way? And have you found certain things more effective for one over the other? My daughter, Rue, she's seven, so she gets it. You know, she she actually always, oh, does the car need washing again? You know, she <laughs> wants to double her pocket money every three days, right? So, uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's like compound interest on the pocket money. My son, uh, Stan, he's only five, so and he's a bit of a lazy bugger, so I, he needs a bit more of a push. Um, but that might just be an age thing, you know. Yeah. But uh, as you know, like everybody, um, you know, has different sort of personalities and relationships with money. But one of the things that sort of, got me interested in this was I think as I mentioned on your podcast maybe last time we were on that that concept of give me the boy of seven and I will show you the man Mm. and there was research done decades ago that a lot of the learning and um, I don't understand the science behind it but uh, because of the the way that um, kids develop you know a huge amount of their development is done by the age of seven so if you if you set them off with bad habits um, it's going to be harder to correct them down the track. Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic, and you can see it playing out. Like at, at the moment, I feel like yeah, that osmosis is really at work too, right? If they see your habits, um, they're going to soak that up like a sponge. So um, that's fantastic. If you want a copy of the book, Wealth Waves for the Young, we'll put show notes in, uh, put it in the show notes so you can see and find a copy for yourself. Um, the, the next thing, and we're jumping around a bit, but I like this, is basically I want to pick your brains on a startup that. Uh, you and Doran have come together to create. It's called Buyers Buyers. And I'm hoping maybe you can tell us how did this come together? How did you meet Doran? Why did you come up with this idea of uh, a platform for buyers advocacy? And I think maybe some context will help here. Like what role do buyers advocates play? Um, And then we'll just riff from there on some of the things that have transpired. Yeah, so interesting because I've been doing my own thing for about 12 years, quite happy, you know, designing my day, yeah, only really doing the stuff I want to do. Um, a bit mm. like yourself with Rask, you know, you, you do the, you try and do the stuff that you enjoy because it feels like it's not work. Anyway, a few years ago, I did some work with um, a guy called Doran Peleg, who had a startup called Riskwise Property Research, and um, we did um, we did a report on negative gearing that actually ended up going to Treasury, and um, <laughs> we've done a few bits and pieces like that. Anyway, about two and a half years ago, he came to me and said. Uh, got an idea for a startup, a bit like um, how in the mortgage broking space, there used to be, say, 5% of loans went through brokers. But then along came uh, Aussie Home Loans and AFG and Connective and all, all of the aggregators. And these days, it's like 70% go through mortgage brokers. So but we need to do the same thing, but for property buying services. Um, so predominantly buyer's agent services, but also all the other 
parts of the process that hang off that. And mm. I thought about it and, you know, it's, it's a difficult decision having done your own thing for over a decade to then go into a startup, which can be all encompassing, mm. as you know from experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put in some seed capital and um, we're building Australia's only marketplace, I guess, for seamless end-to-end property buying and uh, residential lending solutions so just to improve the consumer experience for buying property so i guess the problem we were solving is that something like 18 percent of property buyers consider using a buyer's agent but today it's only about three percent of the market actually does use buyer's agents largely because of the cost it's sydney or melbourne you might pay 20 to forty thousand dollars for a buyer's agent um, and most particularly first-time buyers just won't pay that um, so we developed an affordable marketplace solution. Um, so we've got three products. We've got a property plan um, called WePlan. So for people who don't know what to do next, we've mm. got a planning solution. We've got the f- traditional end-to-end property buyer's agent solution, but we also have a cheaper alternative called WeBuy, which is effectively due diligence, negotiation, and acquisition through to settlement. It's not a full end-to-end service, and it's therefore much more affordable. So anyway, long story short, we launched our B2C marketing campaign in September last year. We uh, got up to a run rate of over two and a half million within five months. Um, hmm. And we're getting a, a fair number of inquiries each month for home loans as well. So we do offer in-house broking services. And um, yeah, so I guess we've reached the point of uh, a Series A funding round, uh, raising three and a half um, equity hmm. or convertible notes. Uh, we've raised a, a fair chunk off our own back, uh, but now we're going to go to family offices and institutions as well and professional investors. So I guess that's it. Um, mm. that's, that was how it came about and that's where we've got to. So you're, you're basically, if I could summarise, you're basically connecting, at, in the first instance, you're connecting people that want to buy or invest in property. You're connecting them with experts around the country. Um, and you're doing that in an affordable way by using a lot of analytics and, and data and technology in the background that can, not only co- connects them but helps them do their due diligence. Um, and I guess then on building on top of that, you've got um, like the financing and, and the cash flow side of property investing and property buying. Um, so this is interesting because I figured like it combines two things that Australians love and two things that investors love, which is property and technology because you bring, you're marrying them together. So is the model that basically you source fantastic buyers agents or who you think are like high quality buyers agents around the country and they come to the platform because they're going to get served with leads. And on the consumer side, I'm going to go on the website and I'm going to put in my details and, and ma- get matched with someone. Is that basically the platform side of it? Yeah, so... So we, yes, yeah, so we built a national panel of 25 property buyers agencies. So it doesn't matter if you're buying in um, Sydney, Melbourne, Southeast Queensland, but also if you're buying in Perth or Adelaide, Canberra, regional Australia, we've got agencies that cover all of the main cities and main regional hubs. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, you're right, the, the tech is a big part of it because it for us to make this worthwhile, it's got to be fully scalable. We've got to be able to cope with, uh, thousands of transactions we, we don't want to do it on a low volume mm. uh, so we spent a lot of time building out um, tech so everything's automated um, screening matching invoicing collection you name it I guess ultimately what we want to do is build an affiliation 
with um, the, one of the major lenders. So we're we're, we're in, in process with that. Um, so mm-hmm. we're speaking and meeting with one of the majors. Um, so I guess the, the the key thing for us is that the whole thing has to work on a scalable basis. Uh, another thing is that we we acquired the IP of RiskWise um, into the company buyers buyers. So we've got actually a suite of pro- property market reports um, which can actually help people with that decision on where and what to buy next. Um, so we've got regional economic analysis. We've got a report called Where to Buy. You just key in your key criteria, brings out a suburb shortlist and recommendations. So we've, we've got a range of tech that sits alongside the traditional uh, part of the industry, which is, as you said, connecting people with buyers agents and actually buying the property. Hmm. So it's, yeah, so it's, uh, when we were talking about this, I didn't realize the sophistication in the back end. So I thought that was that was pretty neat. And I guess that acquisition makes sense um, and it gets you guys off the ground and building that platform far quicker than you could have if you just started from scratch. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, so you mentioned, because this is a really interesting part too, as, as a business owner, is you're going, you're trying to raise capital. You're trying to raise capital for the business to fund that next leg of growth. Uh, how have you gone about doing that? Like, who do you approach? How do you network? How do you get conversations with the right people? Yeah, so I guess what we we did a, um, a seed round, um, and that was what they used to call the, the three Fs or the four Fs, depending mm-hmm. on who you speak to, mainly just connections, you know, friends, false family. Um, we picked up, um, I guess I've, I've been in financial circles for most of my adult life, so you got you build up a decent range of connections over that time. Uh, we, we picked up four investors from Atlassian. Um, so a couple of those guys uh, sit on our IT board advisory mm-hmm. and they're just helping us to build the flywheel because they've been through that process before. Um, mm-hmm. One of the guys was the architect of um, Jira. You know, so mm-hmm. they can help us to see the problems ahead of time. Yeah, for sure. So for the, the seed round, it was mainly just personal connections, friends of friends, people who work in finance, uh, you know, three or four of them are fund managers in their own right. So, you know, professional investors. Uh, but I guess, you know, getting to the Series A round, we've raised one million uh, from our own efforts, but we really now need to go on, look at family offices, VCs, fundies or whoever, uh, people with, a, you know, somewhat deeper pockets and investment expertise just to take us on to that next level. Mm. And you, you mentioned before that, like I, I feel like the, a lot of the pitch is basically like here's where we are now, here's our MVP, which you seem to be past that because you mentioned the run rate before, and then it's here's where we can get it to. Um, you said before that uh, only around three percent of people use uh, a buyer's agent. How big can that get? You, you referenced the, the mortgage broking side, which is now about seventy percent. Is that what you think it gets to, or is it much lower than that? Like where do you see that falling? I think it, it's lower. Um, for the market as it works currently, it's much lower. I think um, if you go to some parts of the States, for example, most people will use a buying agent, but it's a different model. That's where the, the commission mm. is actually split from the sale of the property and the buying agent gets paid that way. I think um, where there's actually a fee to pay, I mean, we've run models. If you um, have an affordable marketplace solution, in theory, it could be as high as 40% of the market. I think, I mean, in our um, estimation, if we can get the market up towards five to ten percent, I mean, that's that's a huge addressable market in its own right. Particularly if you've got the ancillary services that hang off it, mm. um, the buying process, because you've got home loans, but then there's all the other stuff, you know, 
mm. you know, building surveys, property management, depreciation schedules. Um, so, like, yeah, we're, we're hoping to sort of grow the market towards five to ten percent over the coming years, uh, which I think with an affordable solution is eminently achievable. I think the game changer for us would be um, if we can package up a first home buyer option for one of the major lenders or one of the other lenders in Australia, whereby the cost can actually be wrapped up into the loan or absorbed by the lender, um, then obviously then that really does open up the market because just like when you go and see a mortgage broker, you're not putting your hand into your pocket uh, mm. to, to pay a direct fee. So I think that would be the game changer that could really open up the market. So you could, yeah. So you could effectively you could go to buyers, buyers, and you're buying a house almost frictionless. Um, and you guys are just facilitating that entire process, which which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right. Okay. It's a win-win, right? Because yeah. um, it's a very inefficient industry. And only about sixty percent of mortgage pre-approvals ever become home loans because so many people either give up in despair they can't find a property they maybe uh, they find another deal elsewhere with another lender and they switch and so there's all of those loans uh, pre-approvals actually lapsing and never converting so hmm. it would be good for lenders buyers agents help people to buy with less time less cost and less stress uh, so it would increase the conversion rate but it would also de-risk the process because they've got a systematic due diligence and experience to negotiate the best possible price and terms and just avoid all of those pitfalls that you don't necessarily know about when you're buying your first property or any property. I didn't know that it was 60% of those pre-approvals lapsed. That's a very high rate. And like you said, that's incredibly inefficient. Um, so I think that's a story that um, everyone can follow along with. If you follow Pete on Twitter or LinkedIn, or if you can just jump on the website, buyers, buyers, um, you can follow along. And if you want to get in contact with Pete, um, be sure to reach out to him. Um, thanks, for, thanks for sharing that with us, because as someone who's, um, you know, an investor and also um, someone who's run, who started a business from scratch, I know that it can be tough work and there's a lot of, I guess, risks and, and pitfalls along the way. And it's interesting to hear how you might you know, challenge those and, and solve those problems along the way. I think you've got a, a great co-founder there that, you know, kind of marries with your skill set really well. So um, that's fantastic. Now, I know there was a few questions that come through on Twitter for our conversation today, and they revolved mostly around asset classes, property and interest rates. So I guess the first question is, are you concerned about rising interest rates? Maybe, and you can talk to this, not just from property, but from any other asset class. Uh, well, yeah, it's the big story, I guess, at the moment. Um, inflation has taken off, uh, not just in Australia, all around the world. Um, UK, they're expecting double-digit inflation now, driven by food and energy prices. Uh, the US is at 8.5% inflation. New Zealand's not far behind. Australia's sort of five and heading to six. So, yeah, mm. for sure, inflation is a big issue uh, for cost of living and the I guess the result of that is that we've had emergency interest rate settings now for a couple of years, uh, but things will start to normalise. And I guess, yeah, that, that is a concern for households uh, because it's a it's a, a double whammy. You know, not only is the cost of living going up, but if the cost of your mortgage is going up as well, then that could be painful if people haven't been uh, setting aside a buffer. So, yeah, for, for sure, that's the sort of number one issue in uh, financial markets at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I heard Warren Buffett say in a Q&A recently that interest rates are to asset prices what gravity is to matter. Um, and it's it's interesting because it affects all asset classes, right? Um, 
at least those that don't benefit from rising interest rates. So maybe TDs or term deposits do, but that's, you know, there aren't many that do. One of the questions that come through on Twitter is actually about the USD, the, the US dollar. Um, and the question was more around, do you see it continuing to be the reserve currency? Um, and I, I guess maybe if you just, if you, if you do have an opinion on that, do you, do you think that that's um, at risk or, um, you know, do you see that, you know, we're still buying US dollars when rates and uncertainty and geopolitical concerns are high? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the uh, <laughs> it's been part of the narrative, hasn't it, in recent years mm. that the US dollar is going to be trash and um, we're going to get new digital currencies will take over. I guess the interesting thing has been the sheer strength of the US dollar in recent times. It's kind of put those arguments to bed in, in my book. I, I guess the to your point on Warren Buffett, I mean, I guess this is um, more... Uh, your wheelhouse than mine, but you know, what, what is the impact of rising inflation and interest rates on stocks? Because I guess the thing is, it probably comes down to your own philosophies because you can probably find a study that will tell you, mm. you know, inflation is good for stocks, interest rates, you know, um, because, you know, the S&P 500 is volatile and therefore most stock markets, you know, follow around the world. Um, I guess that my best, care, sort of my best understanding of it would be that probably value stocks are going to be less impacted. I think energy has had a great run, but maybe things like telcos and consumer staples, you know, the traditional value stocks, but some of the growth stocks where, you know, you're looking at some of those discounted cash flow models and it feels like in the last couple of years, it's been like an enormous bet on the long end of the curve. But if interest rates are going to start normalizing and we've already seen it, right? Stocks like Netflix and Coinbase and Beyond Meat, and you know, suddenly some of those valuations have just plunged. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I don't know the answer, but I, I guess you could make the argument that higher interest rates could um, equate to lower valuations across markets, but um, maybe mm. some sectors will do better than others. Mm. Yeah, because that's another question that came through: is basically how do certain asset classes perform in different inflationary or interest rate environments? Um, and we'd have to go back quite a while to start to study these things. And I don't know if you think in a similar way, but I often find that people will reference things, say, like the performance of stocks or the performance of a sector um, or even property in certain markets. They'll go back to the late 90s, early 90s, 80s, 70s, wherever. And then they'll say, see, this happened <laughs> as if like we can expect that now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I. One thing that we we see, if we just zoom in on property, actually, just for a minute, because there's one question that I had prepared in advance, was if we zoom in on property, there's a lot of headlines like, we saw this during COVID, property price is going to fall 32%, then they went the opposite direction. <laughs> um, so what are some of the things, if people are scared about property, property in particular as an asset class with rising rates or inflation, what are some of the things that you might look at? We hear mortgage distress or those types of things. Like, what do you, What would you primarily be looking at as an indicator there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, basically rising interest rates. I would probably try and think in 10-year chunks and not what's going to happen in the next six months and <laughs> probably choose your information sources. You know, the the people who really follow markets closely, um, Cameron Kusher at REA, uh, Tim Lawless, uh, mm. CoreLogic, Nerida Connorsby, Ray White. I mean, they're the people who are really across markets. Now, I know some people might say, oh, but they're the real estate sector um, but there's people like you know chris joy who's you know he's not he's not going to be 
preternaturally bullish or bearish. He'll give you some informed opinion. But I think the main thing with property is you've got to think of it as a longer term investment because the transaction costs are quite a clip. Um, mm. So it's not really going to work as a, a one year investment for people. So you need to be thinking 10 years out. Um, and why do you know why is real estate traditionally seen as an inflation hedge? Well, I guess there's probably four ways that you can benefit. One is you fix your mortgage rate when interest rates are low. So when everyone else is being punished, mm. you're sort of uh, sheltered from it. Um, generally, you would expect to see rents going up 15, 20% for houses this year. Um, so that's another way. You're kind of almost exporting the inflation on mm. to the tenant. Um, construction costs have absolutely rocketed over the past year. So, I mean, that doesn't impact established housing directly, but it does to some extent underpin the cost of new dwellings coming onto the market. I mean, timber prices were up, what, 50%, mm. steel was up 20 So, the, I mean, the cost of constructing a home has gone up 20% plus over the past year. And I think the other thing is that generally, and this is more of a long-term thing, is that debt just as a, an investor gets inflated away over time. So, you know, um, thinking back to, you know, my wife's first property purchase in 1996, you know, you think, look at the mortgage today and think that's just tiny, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> when you look at it 25 years on. So, and um, I mentioned the UK with 10% inflation. Well, you know, wages are starting to spiral now. So, yeah, in the short term, the interest rates could actually be, uh, punishing for the property market but it, that is a, a high rate of inflation and effectively inflating away the debt over time mm, that's a really interesting one and i think that is an important point because uh if you think about the the long-term orientation if you've got a short-term orientation with high frictional costs um you are going to probably lose in that respect but if you do have that longer term view like you said that actually can play into your favor in dramatically so and we see that not just with uh, residential debt we or like consumer debt or whatever we we see it with um we we, we see it with uh, central banks as well that's kind of the theory right that higher inflation can it slowly enough inflation can inflate away central bank debt um do you see you know there's a lot of talk about a soft landing hard landing so on and so forth for the economy do you think about that a lot do you think about like how we're going to handle that side of the ledger as well um, I think a soft landing might be difficult. Um, I think uh, the way inflation has been going and you know, the Fed's talking about 50 basis points next month and another 50 the month after. And, you know, hmm. when you start to uh, see the pace of uh, potential pace of interest rate increases, um, there's already a good potential that, you know, 2023, there could be a recession. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I try not to worry about these things. You know, I guess... Certainly, from a real estate point of view, um, uh, you, you just got to take a longer term view. I mean, you could we actually have had a recession in Australia through COVID, as you mentioned, but then mm. stabilizers kick in, um, you know, interest rates start falling again, um, government tips in the fiscal stimulus, and you know, things normalize themselves. Yeah, I guess if typically recessions they used to say happen every what seven or eight years, so you, if you're going to invest for the long term, you're going to get some. Uh, mm. So if you're an accumulator of assets, um, you're going to pick them up. I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, you mentioned uh, people say, well, what happened when inflation was high before? But it doesn't necessarily follow, you know, in the 1970s, inflation peaked to what, 17.5%. Mm. Uh, and yeah, Sydney house prices did 
250% over the decade and units did 300. But it doesn't necessarily follow we're going to see the same thing now because there's more debt around already, prices are higher. So it's a bit the same with the CAPE ratio and stuff like that. People say, oh, well, look at 1880, you know, the CAPE was da-da-da. So well, yeah, <laughs> things have changed a bit over time. So I think sometimes you should be a bit wary about superimposing trends from yesteryear on to today. Um, mm. But um, yeah, I suppose another uh, you know, thing that people say, you know, about market cycles, you know, buy low, sell high. Look, I get it. But, you know, just to take that example that I mentioned, my wife bought her first house, 96, you know, had a, had 10 years of boom to 2006. And then 2007 to nine, there was a downturn. And it's, it's easy in hindsight to say, well, why didn't you sell in 2006 and then buy again in 2010? Mm. But the reality is people were talking about a crash from about 2003. And then it boomed for another four years. So like if, if you knew in advance, sure. But there's two things. There's the capital gains taxes. And can you actually time the market that easily? In my experience, not that easy. Yeah, I see that. We see that on the other side of the fence, right? In, in stock market and equities. Um, yeah, the people that are most fearful of investing and put it off when you're in a bull market are also the ones that tend to be most fearful when you're in the bear market and refuse to invest because they think yeah. it will fall further and they never invest. So we see that psychology play out no matter where you look with money. Uh, there was one question that came through on Twitter. KCW Capital asked, or just maybe made a point, something for us to focus on, um, is uh, if you have any commentary on both the dem- uh, potential demand spike and the supply side impacts of both policies from, I guess, the government uh, in terms of what they're proposing in the election with stimulus for housing and for affordability and those types of things? Uh, yeah, so different policies. The coalition has proposed um, somewhat controversially uh, people using 50,000 or up to 40% of their super balance to buy a first property. Um, look, most young people don't have that much in their super, uh, so it will be more beneficial to people in their 30s plus, especially couples. Um, are there enough first home buyers with that kind of money sitting in their super? It's questionable. It's obviously supportive and it's a demand size, uh, demand side measure, but I don't know that it's going to be market moving. I think as much as anything, you know, what, what we've seen, this is something we talked about in Noosa, right? It's almost like a, a re- basing of expectations if the government's going to keep stepping in every Mm. single time there's a hint of a downturn as they did in covid you know what did we see mortgage holidays term funding facility you know just write a letter to the bank so i'm not paying the mortgage for a year all of these things are just resetting the expectations of the market because uh Mm. again now we're talking about rising interest rates and labor's in with a shared equity scheme um so i I think uh yes it's a demand size side measure and the same for Labour's shared equity scheme. I don't think in themselves they're market moving, but maybe just from a psychology point of view, it's almost a statement that we're not going to let the market crash. So, mm. yeah, um, mm. Labour's sort of got a 10 billion affordable housing uh, fund proposal. But I mean, that that when you break it down, that equates to 6,000 dwellings a year in a market of nearly 11 million dwellings. So it's, it's a fraction of 1%. So again, it's not going to move the needle there's not really much being done on the supply side, I guess, is the issue. Mm. I think that's the that's probably the yeah, the bigger issue, more structural issue, right? You just talked yeah. about you just talked about property price, uh, construction prices going up. Like it doesn't make it any easier. Um, 
I, yeah, I, I think that that's the conclusion that after many years of back and forth, we spoke about this. Um, it's just not a fair fight um, for most for most investors. You would want to play where you've got support of you know the government, basically, um, and that's what we've seen. And um, I know we're going to talk about this on another show on, on your podcast um, coming up soon, uh, talking about how you can use property and how it has utility outside of necessarily just like the price. Um, so it's a fascinating thing. There is one final question which I might get in here, which is more of a cheeky one. My question for Pete is, will the property price in Brisbane start to fall next year? <laughs> uh, it's funny, I say, about every third email I get, you know, you get on uh, Gmail, you get these sort of promotions and yeah. every third or fourth email is why Brisbane will be immune to the downturn. But <laughs> unless uh, somebody's changed uh, something, you know, every market will cycle. Um, so yeah, the prices will cool off for sure. Um, I, I guess people who are, Looking at Brisbane as a market, um, well, we mentioned the ten-year timeframes. Brisbane Olympics 2032. If you're thinking about buying in Brisbane, that should be a focus. You know, ten years plus, um, mm. because of course there'll be a downturn, and we've just had even more flooding, um, which won't help. Um, we uh, we had the floods 2011-12, um, which was, you know, because the previous floods have been 1974. There was a lot of talk about it being a one in fifty-year mm. event. Um, but then we got, then it was a one in 10 year event. Now it seems to be quarterly. So, <laughs> uh, no, there will, I think there'll be a downturn as interest rates rise or at least a slowdown. Um, but yeah, whether you can fine tune the market that easily. Um, I guess the one thing that's really changed from say 2013, 14 is that there isn't a big overbuild now of units. There was, there's a lot of units being built for Chinese investors before, mm. uh, but now there's a real shortage. And as you said, there's a shortage of tradies. Construction costs are going up. Aussies don't buy new units typically, except a few super funds. So the, the the big challenge for the next few years is supply. Where's it? Where is all the new supply going to come from as the borders reopen? Hmm. Yeah, good point. And that's a fitting way to maybe put a bow on this conversation, mate. It was great fun catching up last week and having a having a chat with Ben up there in Noosa as well, and um, also getting you on the show today. Um, so I'll I'll put a link in the show note. Wealth ways for the young. It's holding up on the screen if you're watching. Um, and people can find you on Twitter at Pete Wargent. Um, you can head to buyersbuyers.com.au. Um, if you want to get in touch with Pete about, you know, your interest, express your interest in what he and Doran are building, um, please do that because he's taking conversations around funding and, and wants to network and those types of things too. So, Pete, mate, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show again. Pleasure. You're, you're better at uh, capital raising conversations than I am. And uh, yeah, well, I'll keep working on you to uh, relocate up to the glorious Sunshine Coast at Noosa. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think it will take much convincing coming into winter <laughs> here in Melbourne, mate. So yeah, mate, once again, I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, Owen. Cheers.